Welcome to a very special Thirsty episode. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. I'm here with my wife, Shelly. Merry Christmas. And I am Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer, here with my wife, Anne-Cherie. Merry Christmas. And we already decided that you're going to be called Mrs. Goose for this episode. And then, and then Shelly's going to be Mr. or Mrs. Maverick since I'm Mr. Maverick or just Maverick. Fantastic. So, before we get into the scripture readings, I wanted to ask the two of you, Klusmeyers, what are some of your Christmas traditions that you have? And then we'll talk about ones that we have. So, what are Christmas traditions that you have in your home? feel like we have a tradition of not usually being home on Christmas not home very often we're not home all that often because a lot of times we're traveling to go see family and stuff this might be the first year that we're actually home on Christmas day in quite a while well we have the tradition of not celebrating our youngest son's birthday (laughs) because it's right before Christmas and he always gets grumpy that he doesn't get a birthday party well this is your first Christmas in your own home, right? Yes. Yes, this is our first Christmas in our own home. So So they get to make new traditions. We we do actually have a mantle that we can hang stockings up instead of just putting nails in the wall and hanging them behind the couch. So Yeah, that's very exciting this year. All right, Shelly, you want to talk about Christmas traditions that we have in our family? Well, what do we do on Christmas Eve? Go to church together as a family. And then we come back to our house and we open presents. And then we do what your family used to do. And we'd have a special drink, correct? Yes, we have grasshoppers. You want to explain what a grasshopper is to everyone? Because not everyone's from southern, southeastern Wisconsin. It's an ice cream drink with cream de mint and cream de cocoa in it. And then this year we're going to add a special drink, a cherry slush that we made this. Cherry bounce. Cherry bounce. So that'll be even more special because it's one that we <laughs> we made this summer. Uh, we, Is it bounces instead yes. of slush? Yeah. <laughs> so we created a cherry bounce, which is just cherries with the cherry juice, and then we used a bunch of different alcohols that none of us drink. (laughs) So we used to invite some of our friends over for grasshoppers occasionally, uh, but we had to be kind of sneaky what we were doing. So we started referring to them as John the Baptists (laughs) because of the... We used to take some grasshoppers hoppers over to a neighbor's house. Uh, Pastor Bauer and his wife lived fairly close to us, and we would I'd make an extra picture, and we'd drive them over by them and deliver pitcher grasshoppers for them, too, on Christmas Eve. And if we, we had a plan that if we got stopped by the police of having open alcohol, we'd just give it to them instead. <laughs> uh, so do you have any traditions that you've seen in the churches that you've been a part of? Um, When we were in Watoma, uh, I know they had a tradition of singing the song Peace, Peace, along with Silent Night every Christmas Eve. I always liked that. My sister and I sang it one year for, because we didn't have a choir that year, so she and I sang it for the congregation. 
is Nathan had asked, and I thought it was a good thing that he asked, what traditions do we have here at Water of Life and before that Epiphany for Christmas Eve? And so I said, well, we sing Silent Night and we turn off all the lights and we have the candles lit for everyone in the congregation. So it was good that he asked and then he didn't put it in the bulletin. So it is in the bulletin. Well, it is now after I check because you didn't have the candle lighting. You didn't have the silent night as the last hymn. I mean, I, I understand he had 11 hymns for Christmas Eve. So everyone was going to be too tired. I'm sorry, Nathan. <laughs> See, and the reason I asked was going back to that peace, peace at Watoma. We, we didn't do it one year and it was a major blow up we almost had some people leave the church over it that we didn't sing peace peace on christmas eve i mean i understand that if you would have sang silent night with the candles after it was a 13th hymn for the evening they probably were dropping the candles who were so tired in fairness i i did ask you if you thought 11 hymns was too many and you said yes And uh, I'm trying to think of other traditions that we have. Uh, Christmas Day, we we have the new tradition, just a f- few years old now, where we do carry the processional candle in, or not candle, the processional cross in, because we do that with our festival services like Christmas Day, the Epiphany Festival, Pentecost, Easter, and so forth. Uh, this year... It's not a tradition, but it's a neat thing that we're going to be having the baptisms for a dad and his seven-year-old daughter on what be Christmas Eve morning, the fourth Sunday in Advent. I thought you were going to say the new tradition was you not preaching at all during the Christmas season. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I, I've been telling Shelly and Nathan and Andre, I'm just so bored this week because I don't have anything to do except a podcast because Nathan's preaching Christmas Eve morning. Uh, neither one of us is preaching for Christmas Eve. That's the 11 hymn lessons and carols. <laughs> <laughs> that evidently you're not bitter about. <laughs> <laughs> and then Christmas Day, he's he's preaching. And so I, I don't have anything to do until uh, New Year's Eve morning, which, again, we don't celebrate New Year's Eve, uh, either the evening or New Year's Day. And I was asked recently by one of our teachers, oh, you're not celebrating New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? I didn't say, well, we ha- I haven't done it since I've been here. I did say, well, we celebrate the Epiphany Festival. But I really wanted to add, that's the historical uh, festival, not New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. But I didn't get snarky with that either. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) It is really hard to to not say everything that comes into my head. (laughs) And then... Uh, Shell, I was going to ask you too. Well, maybe first I'll ask you, Antri. How many nativities do you have? <laughs> I think I have two, but only one is displayed. Two. No, we have that. Other, we have that other one too. We have more than two. Yeah, I think we have three. 
We might have three. I think we have three because I, I have that one I told you about that I got at Disney World when I was like seven and all the pieces are broken because I would play with them with my G.I. Joe. It's like they were action figures. <laughs> what, what you, uh, Disney World Nativity. So you have Goofy as a shepherd, no, no, no. Mickey as no, baby it's like, Jesus. It's like a nativity. It's like a normal nativity set. I just happened to buy it when we were at Disney over Christmas. I don't remember why. It was a long time ago. And Shelly, how many nativities do you own? I don't think I can count that high. <laughs> it's probably at least 50. Probably yeah. pretty close, yeah. yeah. And she's got some interesting nativities. Uh, she has one from Jerusalem. Uh, so it's made out of olive wood. She has one from uh, somewhere in Africa made out of uh, polished stone. She got that one in July, not because it was Christmas in July, but because it took so long on the boat to come here, and I kept getting emails, I'm sorry, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, and then we we got one in San Antonio a few years ago, right? What, what is that one? It's made from metal, and it's got, like, the shepherds have cowboy hats on it, and it's got a Western feel to it. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit surprised we don't have a Wizard of Oz nativity set. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would like that. <laughs> well, someone sent me a meme the other day about this, and I said, well, we could do this at the Caledonia campus, because I don't know if you noticed this, Nathan, but uh, the at least one nativity scene that's up there in the church does not have the baby Jesus in the manger. I don't know if it's the one in the front of the church, if that's the same way, but the one in the narthex, the entryway, does not have the baby Jesus. And so I told our member, I could put the baby Yoda in there and see if anyone notices. (laughs) Kind of like the year you put the dragon in the middle of my nativity. Yeah, Yeah, I, I actually have that in my notes right there. It says dragon at manger. Good job. Well, that was, that was like our youngest son, Grant, was decorating the tree, and I have a lot of Star Trek and Star Wars ornaments, and he found Yoda, and he said, look, Pastor Zarling's on the Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I like Grant. <laughs> I do. Yes, uh, Shelley's right. The, uh, one year I did put the dragon in the nativity scene, because I talked about that in my sermon for Christmas Day, uh, the dragon in the nativity, because... Uh, then I, I was talking about the well, the ancient serpent uh, in the Garden of Eden, and that he would have been there, and then dreading, uh, not physically there as a serpent, but dreading the the birth of the Christ child, of him fulfilling that prophecy of the the child to be born of the woman, and then equating that, I think. The epistle lesson would have been the dragon in Revelation 12 that went after the son that was born of the woman. And the woman there in Revelation 12 is the church, and then the son is is Jesus. So that was the text I was preaching on, the dragon in the manger. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple other things, too, is are you guys making any Christmas cookies or candies this week? I made sugar cookies last Sunday, and then I couldn't find them, and I was convinced that Anshri had eaten 
three dozen cookies. And I forgot that she really likes freezing them and eating them frozen because that's what her grandfather used to do. But it did take me a good 20 minutes to track down where all my cookies had gone. (laughs) Are you making any other cookies or just those frozen sugar cookies? We haven't really talked about what we're making, but we do have family coming. So we probably should make some kind of desserts or have some things available for them. So, Shell, what are we making? Because I think... So our daughter Lydia came home from college yesterday. Our daughter Miriam will be coming home today. And then tomorrow is going to be a big day of cookies and candies. I have requests for fudge, caramels, peanut butter balls, angel food, pretzels, pretzel rods. Yeah, so a lot of of the, the chocolate stuff, I'll stand at the the stove for maybe eight hours dipping chocolates like the pretzel rods you said and then the the pretzels uh, caramels and then doing things like uh, the peanuts and so forth uh, one of the things that uh, I asked my daughter Abby to come over and we're going to try this this year making some orange dreamsicle moonshine that really doesn't have anything to do with Christmas just something new to make you realize you can buy it, right? Yeah, there's a lot of things you can buy. You can buy <laughs> you can buy candies and cookies too, <laughs> but that's not quite the same. So, anything else you want to talk about with Christmas traditions? Because I want to do a new one this year. I've done this in the past, but uh, Nathan and I were talking about this that Christmas Day he might be trying to cut his lawn since it's supposed to be like 50 <laughs> degrees here. So I'm going to I'm planning on biking before church because I don't have anything to do on Christmas day. <laughs> and then biking to church for the for the worship service. Yeah, I think this is a new tradition that you're going to be preaching everything for Christmas. Maybe maybe Holy Week too. Holy Week's rougher than Christmas, just beware. I, he's so merciful. <laughs> well, Nathan was very kind, and because uh, I offered. I said, I'll preach one of these. That, that's no problem. And he said, well, you've been doing this by yourself for 19 years. And I said, no, I've been doing this by myself for 27 years. I'm not counting, but <laughs> I, I have been. And so it's good not to have to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It does slip my mind occasionally just how old you really are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, the other day he was looking at the the web the church website and he said we should probably update this because you're still the only pastor here and your hair color has changed. And I said I don't think it has. It's still brown. Right? With a lot of white. <laughs> well, besides that. I mean, I I don't think Nathan's hair color's changed much recently. No, but I I definitely have a lot more white in my beard. <laughs> Okay, Uh, let's get into the scripture lessons for the fourth Sunday in Advent. We're going to touch on the Old Testament lesson from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. You are also to say the following to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make your reputation great like that of the great ones on the earth. 
I will set up a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them there. They will dwell there, and they will not be disturbed again. Violent men will not afflict them again as they did at the beginning, and ever since the day I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your seed who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he sins, I will discipline him with a rod used by men and with blows of the sons of men. My faithful mercy will not depart from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed to make room for you. Your house will stand firm and your kingdom will endure forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. So this is talking about a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled twofold. Uh, It's given to David, who wants to build the house of the Lord, the temple for God. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to have your son Solomon do that for me. So this is a fulfillment that is, or a prophecy that is fulfilled two ways, one with Solomon and one with Jesus. So Nathan, you want to talk about how Solomon fulfills this prophecy? Well, Solomon is the one who ends up building the temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. Um, And then Solomon's reign really is one that is fairly peaceful. Uh, Saul was at war most of his reign. David was at war for much of his reign. But Solomon really ruled during a time of peace um, with vast amounts of wealth, Um, Just the amount of money that was pouring into Solomon's kingdom uh, is truly amazing. Um, But then that was kind of it. Solomon really is the high point of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, After Solomon's reign, the kingdom is broken in two, and the people never have the kind of power and glory that they did under King Solomon. Um, But again, too, we know that Solomon fell away at least for a time. There's debate if at the end of his life he came back to the faith and repented or not. Um, But we clearly see that while this prophecy was fulfilled in part in Solomon, Solomon's line was not established forever. Uh, The kingdom was broken, and then, of course, in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, that was the end of of the kings of Israel. There was never another Davidic king that ruled on the throne. And so then we see this fulfilled ultimately in Christ, the last king, the great king that would be born from the house and line of David. Yeah, and so looking at these verses, and ladies, you can jump in on anything you see here as fulfillment in Christ. Uh, that, you know, just looking at the the middle verses there, uh, verses 11 and following. uh, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord himself will make a house for you. Uh, And there you can think of uh, that God is saying to David that Solomon's going to build the temple, but also that a house through Jesus is going to be the house of worship uh, that we call our Christian church. Uh, Your days are complete and you will rest with your fathers. I will raise up after you your seed who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. That is then going to be in Christ 
he is going to come from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's going to come from the line of David. Uh, he is David's son, and yet David still calls him Lord. Uh, and then he is the fulfillment of that prophecy given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, I guess it's really given to the serpent that the, the one born of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Well, that's where God is talking about seed here is one of those loaded terms in the Old Testament that people who heard this prophecy to David would have immediately thought of that promise made in the garden and then also the promise made to Abraham uh, that the earth would be blessed through him. And so God is continuing that series of promises that he has made throughout the Old Testament. And then he says, I will establish his kingdom forever. We just finished a series during Advent, uh, and Nathan and I were talking about this too. We were texting back and forth that uh, we were just a little more pious, a little more sanctified because we had four midweek Advent services. And why? And why is that, Nathan? And why did we do well? Four for me is people didn't know. Usually, you only do three, but why did we start when we did? Well, because we were working with several other churches on our Advent rotation, and they started earlier, so we decided we'd also start earlier, but then we'd go through the last week. Yeah, because when does midweek Advent or when does Advent start? Uh, after the festival of Saint Andrew, yeah. so, which I believe was established by Pope Gregory the Great in five hundred some. Yeah. Eight? So, yeah, so we were just going back again. That we celebrate these ancient festivals like Epiphany and so forth, and then, yeah, that being a little more pious, that we're going to celebrate Advent on the right days and so forth. <laughs> but then you hear in uh, verse fourteen, God says, "I am your father," to to Jesus, just like Darth Vader, uh, "I will be his father." <laughs> Nathan, why, why did you put your hand on your head like that? Nothing like a little light heresy to just throw in there. Uh, but this is one, when he sins, I will... Are just going to gloss over that? Wait yeah. a minute. So, so are you are you implying theologically that God is a dark lord of the Sith? No. Is that where you're going with that analogy? I'm saying, I'm saying that that Darth Vader stole that line from from this prophecy. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering about this. I didn't check on this. When he sins, I will discipline with a, him with a rod used by men and with blows of the sons of men. So, as you said, Nathan Solomon. You know, had gone away from the Lord maybe for his entire life. Well, uh, with the prostitutes and so forth, we don't know. We pray that he repented and came back. And so this would be a, something that would be fulfilled with Solomon. But I see it also as a fulfillment in Jesus, that even though Jesus did not sin and he didn't ever have to be disciplined by his uh, earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, I see this as a fulfillment in Jesus that God the Father is disciplining him on the cross as he's pouring out his wrath on him. That's the way this section has traditionally been interpreted. 
Um, See no heresy there. That when he sins, because people have said, well, Christ didn't sin, so how is this fulfilled? And the way that's been interpreted, well, on the cross, Christ became sin in our place. He became a sinner, the ultimate sinner, when he took all the sins of the world upon him. And so that's how that's been understood. Um, The thing I was going to bring in with verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. We see echoes of that in Psalm 2 as well, um, that either David, it seems like David had this promise in mind when he was inspired to write that psalm, and David seemed to understand the messianic implications that were there in this prophecy as well. And then verse 15, my faithful mercy will not depart from him as I removed it from Saul. The ladies in our Wednesday morning Bible study were talking about this uh, just yesterday, that they had looked this up of David is probably 18 when he is anointed by Samuel in the fields, and that was what the Lord says in the beginning of this prophecy. He's taking David from the from the pastures. And they had asked the question, well, how long until David then became king? And they had discovered it was 12 years. That's a long time in between being anointed and then uh, remaining a shepherd, and then going into the house of Saul and playing music for him, being a friend of Jonathan, and then being chased around the Judean countryside by Saul. Occasionally having javelins thrown at you, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, but that's what he means, that uh, the Lord removed the kingship from Saul and gave it to David. Uh, he says, I make, make room for you. And then the last verse. Your house will stand firm and your kingdom will endure forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. And there, as we see so much encroachment of the culture into and upon the Christian church and persecution. Now, it's always been that way since the history of the church, both in the Old and the New Testament. I think we've kind of been spared a lot of this in our American culture as we perceive that America is a Christian culture. We don't see that anymore. And yet we see that no matter what happens, that God's kingdom will reign. The, the church that Christ built, uh, it will last until the end of days. Anything any of you want to bring up on that? Shelley? On Shri? Okay, so Nathan, you want to uh, read the gospel lesson then? Uh, yes, so the gospel lesson for this Sunday, uh, the fourth Sunday in Advent, um, we've spent, the first Sunday in Advent has kind of a uh, eschatological feel with the returning of Christ. Uh, the next two Sundays in Advent, really kind of focus on the ministry of John the Baptist. And now with the fourth Sunday, you know, the the Savior is coming. And so the fourth Sunday traditionally has focused on the Annunciation, the proclamation of the angel Gabriel to Mary that she would be the bearer of God, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And so the gospel for this week is from the gospel of Luke uh, chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin pledged in marriage to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But she was greatly troubled by the statement and was wondering what kind of greeting this could be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. Listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be called great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Listen, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, even though she was called barren, and this is her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible for God. Then Mary said, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So, uh, Shelley and Andrew, I want to see if you could answer this question of when the angel comes to Mary and then talks to her, she's greatly troubled. Why is she greatly troubled? Well, I imagine you don't see an angel every day, so that would probably be pretty scary. I would agree with that. Um, I guess as the angel starts, she's probably wondering why this angel is there to see her. Um, I don't know, when he starts talking, I'm sure she was troubled by that too a little bit because of the message that he was bringing was probably not something she was expecting. So with that, Nathan, can we call Mary Theotokos? Absolutely. All right, and why? And what is that? Well, Theotokos is the god, in Greek, that means the god-bearer. At one point in the church's history, there was a dispute between whether Mary should be called the Theotokos or the Christotokos, which means the Christ-bearer. And that had to do with a misunderstanding of the two natures of Christ, that there were some that didn't want to believe that God was, that Mary gave birth to God instead that she gave birth to the Christ, which we don't have to get into the whole confusing I mean, the communication of attributes is confusing as a doctrine is, and some of the heresies trying to explain it really make a mess of it. But we would say yes, because Jesus was born both as true God and true man in a way that we can't understand. But we do confess that Jesus was both, that Mary gave birth to God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So does that mean— that we can have Lutheran churches that are rightly called St. Mary's Lutheran Church. Yes. And why? Because she is a example of the faith, just like the other saints that we name our churches after. Because in the Lutheran tradition, uh, we don't mean a saint in the sense that they were some special person or had a sinless life or um, that we go to in our prayers, we're all saints. We've all been made holy, which is what to be sainted means. And when we call someone from the scriptures a saint, or even the years afterwards, we're talking about them as an example of our faith. And and this comes up because I've been teaching a class on 
Lutherans and Catholics, and then Catholics, they see Mary as that Theotokos like we do, but they give her extra glory, extra praise. Uh, what The Catholic Church will see Mary as a co-redemptrix, a co-redeemer along with Jesus. And they often view Jesus as the judge, someone who is angry with us over our sins. And then so someone who is softer is a mom. So go to mom, go to Mary to get to the Father rather than going through Jesus. I just read an interesting analogy as I was doing my text study on this that some Catholic theologians refer to the church as the body of Christ. They refer to Christ as the head of the church, but Mary is the neck. And in order for the body to communicate with the head, you must go through the neck. And then because they view Mary uh, as someone to get to, to get to God, and they view her as more than what we view as a saint. They view her as someone, like they view the other saints, someone that you can go to to get to God. You can get to and uh, have your prayers answered and so forth. Then they'll have other false doctrines that are not in Scripture, because that's where false doctrines come from, not in Scripture, that these are doctrines of uh, that she also had a birth, that she was born without sin that they will talk about a bodily assumption into heaven as opposed to Christ who was uh, ascended into heaven, that she just was, her body was just taken up into heaven. So they have to view her as perfect and that she is perpetual in her virginity. Yes, they also believe that she did not actually give birth to Jesus, that he came out of her in a miraculous way. And I don't remember what verse. They go to a verse in Scripture that talks about how the gate shall always remain closed and refer to that to Mary's perpetual virginity, that it was a miraculous birth as well. Well, That one I had never heard of before. All right, so ladies, I was thinking about this too, is obviously, well, I'll ask you this question. Why do you think this would have been very scary for Mary, not just because an angel talks to her, but now she's been told that she is pregnant. Why would that have been terrifying for this teenage girl in that culture? Well, one, I think that's terrifying for any teenage girl. Um, Two, I think that um, in their culture, it was really frowned upon because you did not consummate a marriage until after the marriage actually happens um, so it, people would see her as probably being unfaithful to her husband so how do you think then well I'll ask you this one then Shelley how how do you think that she would have told other people that she was pregnant I don't know I guess you just say you're pregnant and that it's through Jesus. I don't know. No one would have believed her. She went and told Elizabeth, though. Like she. But Elizabeth also had an angel come to her. True. And tell her that she was going to be pregnant in her old age. So I believe Elizabeth would have been. So maybe she started with people she trusted the most and kind of gauged their reactions first. Maybe she hid it. So then, 
how did you ladies tell others when you were pregnant? That's a few years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I think I just, well, at least with my husband, I just said, hey, guess what? That's all I can really remember. Um, I mean, my sisters, I probably put out a group text and said, hey, guess what's coming? We didn't, ha- we didn't have group text back then. <laughs> I don't know if we even had the internet back then because I'm so old. Probably not. <laughs> I remember telling our parents with one child, I don't know which one it was, we were in Kentucky, so one of the first three, and one set of parents was at our house, and we made a phone call to the other set of parents and announced it to both of them that way, but I I don't remember anything else. I remember deciding after we told my grandmother and her reaction to never tell her again, (laughs) Um, because... I think it was our second, I think it was with TJ, where I I let my grandparents know, and Grandma goes, Nathan, you do know how this keeps happening, right? (laughs) And I'm like, all right, so we're not going to share this news with Grandma ever again. And then Grant came along. (laughs) So did did she not realize she had a third grandchild from you? All of a sudden, this kid just showed up. Well, that was a, f- a few years later, because Grant's about three years younger than TJ, so we had some time to prepare her, maybe. <laughs> See, there's a lot of things going through my head I'm not saying. <laughs> See, you have no idea what it's like to be me. Uh, I, do, I do know that with our second daughter, Miriam, that we told everyone, and it was interesting because my sister Dawn was pregnant with her first child, AJ. They were four days apart, five days apart. So she waited to tell everyone, to, to let them know, you know, and celebrate our news because she was going to tell them around the same time. And, and then they waited so that, you know, my parents could celebrate uh, that we were pregnant with our second and then, you know, probably a week later than she told them. And, and then when it was... Lydia, well, then it was all three of us. It was, well, they were separated by, by several months, but it was interesting that uh, Miriam and AJ are within five days of each other, and then Lydia and Anna and Lexi are all within the same year. Well, actually, Anna was born in October, Lexi in January, and Lydia in April, so Lydia's the youngest of the three. I have never been pregnant when one of my sisters was not also pregnant because my oldest um, daughter, she was born about a month and a half after my niece, and then TJ was born three months before my nephew, same family, the same set of siblings there, and then um, Grant is part of what we call the 2010 babies (laughs) because we had four of us that were pregnant at the same time. So we had two in June, one in September, and then Grant in December. There you go. Yeah, and, you know, think of the response of, of everyone. You were pretty excited, except for your grandma, that, uh, <laughs> that you're having a baby. And that's what I, I'm trying to get at with this text. And, and you, Andre, said this, is I don't think that the people would have been excited. You know, I don't think Mary's parents would have been excited that 
now their their daughter is having a child in their viewpoint out of wedlock and Joseph certainly wasn't excited either until the angel came and told him the news because he was going to divorce her quietly. I was just going to say that yeah, I mean Gabriel had to step in again and talk to talk to Joseph about what was what was going on. Uh what is interesting in this is you have this Mary knows this and yet what is her response at the end? See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Just the quiet acceptance of her. Where we don't, I don't think we often talk about Mary's faith enough. Um, I think we've kind of gotten away from talking about her because of some of the false doctrine that has grown up in the church because of her, but just the quiet acceptance. And then through the rest of her life, just kind of her quiet, steady presence in the life of Jesus that was there, even at the very end at the cross, as she was there watching her son be crucified and how Jesus, one of his words from the cross is her handing her into the care of his disciple, John, to watch over her. Yeah, and that's a good point of that quiet faith of Mary. And again, like you said, Nathan, I don't think we, as Lutherans, because we we have a tendency to overreact to what the Catholics do. And then, you know, because the Catholics view Mary so highly, I think, unfortunately, we have not viewed her rightly at all and not given her, not the glory, but the the honor that's due her. And this is something that we talked about in that Catholics and Lutherans class in, with a young man who is Catholic. And he said, well, so then any woman could have done this? I said, well, yeah. I mean, there was, it could have been any woman except, no. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is, could it have been any woman? Yes, but Mary is also exceptional in her, uh, she is young, probably a teenager, we suspect, and yet she is that faithful servant, married to a faithful man, Joseph. Uh, and and yet, uh, well, like you said, we should focus on Mary and Joseph and that quiet faith that the two of them have in raising Jesus as their son. And along with that, talking about Mary and Joseph, and we don't have a lot of details uh, from Scripture, and we know during the life of Jesus that his brothers and others and sisters did not accept him. But after his death, Jesus's half-brother James becomes one of the pillars, one of the founding pillars of the Christian church, that he was kind of the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. And we see his influence throughout the book of Acts as the gospel of Jesus spread throughout the world. And then as we're talking about Mary, too, it's interesting then if you've seen The Passion of the Christ. That's uh, fairly old, but I encourage everyone to watch it again uh, around around Easter during Lent. Uh, but understanding that the the director of that movie, uh, Mel Gibson, is Catholic, and so it is really a movie about Mary. When you you can look at it through Lutheran eyes and you focus on Jesus, but when you when you look at it through uh, Mel Gibson's eyes, Catholic eyes, you can see how much emphasis that he puts into Mary there in that movie. Uh, and then one thing, too, you know, as you ladies were saying about Mary with her pregnancy, I, I think that's why she does go and visit Elizabeth out in the countryside. There, 
she maybe not hiding it, but she's away from people out in that Judean countryside where Elizabeth is. And then she can help Elizabeth, who is older and and now pregnant for the very first time, too. And then uh, with a miracle baby in her old age. And then Mary is there in her youth and her virginity and being pregnant with her firstborn. I didn't go this direction with my sermon, but one of the ways that was suggested of dealing with this text is comparing and contrasting the Annunciation of the birth of John with the birth of Jesus and how you see similarities of um, Zechariah asking, well, how can this be? But him asking almost from an attitude of unbelief, because then he loses his ability of speech, but Mary also asking a question, but seeing it more it seems to me more of a question of faith and acceptance going okay but how is this going to happen and i think that's a difference that we can see in our lives as well that there's a difference in questioning god in a manner of unbelief well how could god let something like this happen to me versus asking a question in faith and saying okay i don't understand why god is allowing this to happen to me and i'm going to I'm going to wonder why, but I'm still going to trust that he is going to work these things out for my good. This reminds me of Abraham and Sarah, too, when Abraham believed but questioned, and Sarah did not believe and also questioned, and she was scolded. So what is your theme here for this? And where do you find the law? Where do you find the gospel? Oh, there's, the gospel is pretty easy here. Where's, where's the law in this text? Well, I struggled with law in this text, and so my theme is uh, nothing is impossible with God. And what I do is I kind of am going to work through kind of what Gabriel does. I'm going to go do a review of the Old Testament promises and how God does impossible things, and yet all of those impossible acts pale with the greatest impossible act, which is the birth of the Savior what he had promised, and how he fulfilled it in this miraculous way. And the law I really focus on is more general in the sense of, well, why did God have to act in this miraculous way? It's because of the first, the curse of sin um, that damned the entire human race and how God had to intercede in an impossible way to save us from hell, which is what we all deserve. Anything else you want to bring up in this text, anyone? Okay. Well, going back to them both questioning, you know, Joseph and or um, Zachariah and Elizabeth both questioning. We, on Sheree and I, both work at the middle school for Wisconsin Lutheran School, and I know on Sheree and I both have had conversations with some of our young men and women that are growing and learning about tone of voice, and I think that comes to play in this story too. Going back to what Nathan said, that that the quiet acceptance and still questioning, her words were almost exactly what Zachariah said, and the same with Abraham and Sarai. They they were the same words, but your tone of voice really makes a difference and changes the meaning of anything. What do you mean? What kind of tone of voice do middle schoolers have? (laughs) Um... Sassy, <laughs> so, disrespectful. So sometimes you mean that they actually say the things that come into their minds. Many do not have filters at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
Antri, do you want to give us some examples of things that these kids say? <laughs> no. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> I feel like a lawyer in one of those television shows right now where I'm putting my hand over the microphone and my client has no comment. <laughs> uh, so we'll ask thing, Antri first and then Shelly. So... When are you opening presents at your house? And then what do you do with your what do you do with your extended family? Cuz I know your families are close by. Wait, we have presents at home? I I did tell my children I did not buy them any presents this year. Which is sort of true. <laughs> I bought them a couple of things. Did you did you tell them that living in this house is the present? Um I have told them that before and sometimes I'll buy them food and things too. And that's a present. Um I, a lot of times we'll open presents Christmas Eve, mostly because we travel on Christmas Day. So I would think we'll probably still do that. Oh, yeah, and you and you have time. Well, let's see, because I'm doing the seven o'clock service. You've got from five o'clock. Well, the service will be over at say six o'clock. You have six o'clock on to uh, to open presents if you like. If we do it that night, we'll be home Christmas Day this year. We could do it then too. I think that this year I've gone more with trying to get them experiences instead of things. So I did. We did take them to the Keith and Kristen Getty concert last year. That was was one of the. It was good. A Lutheran concert you went to. It was a really good concert. It was a concert. I wouldn't say it was a worship service, but it was a concert. There is a there is actually a very powerful a British poet that they had there. Except when he got on, I'm like, oh, they brought they brought Professor Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> and and Shelley, you want to talk about our opening of presents and the wrapping paper and so forth? Well, when we were in Kentucky, we opened on Christmas Day because we'd never traveled. It was six plus hours home to anyone's family. So we very rarely traveled when we were in Kentucky. But then when we moved here 19, almost 20 years ago now, we started opening on Christmas Eve because Christmas Day we go and spend the day with my dad. And most of the time, my brother and sister and their families come too. With the wrapping paper, many years ago, I stopped wrapping paper, uh, wrapping Christmas presents with different wrapping papers. So when Abby starts opening her paper, her Christmas presents, all her presents are wrapped in the same paper. And Brandon, our son-in-law, his are wrapped in a different paper, and Miriam's in a different paper. So they know, once they start ra- unwrapping, they know which gifts are theirs. But the gifts are all under the tree right now, and they don't know... Although Bell helped wrap everything this year, so I think we have a snitch amongst us. Well, and what was funny is uh, I was wrapping the presents. Bell was helping me. And like Shelley said, you've got one wrapping paper for Abby and Brandon, one wrapping paper that's different for Mark, who is dating our daughter Miriam. And uh, so Shelley had bought each of the four girls, and then you know Mark and Miriam, the same gift, and then... Brandon and Abby, the same gift of a, what was it now? A A s'mores maker. S'mores maker. So I gave Belle the idea, and she did a really good job of wrapping it. So she took uh, wrapping paper of Miriam's 
and wrapping paper of marks, and she did half and half on the s'more maker, and the same with Abby and Brandon. So that was so. If they really are thinking, they'll know that hey, that's that's theirs. Andre, doesn't your mom do something similar, but then like forgets who's present? <laughs> it goes where? Yes. Well. My mom likes to buy things throughout the year, which is great. She had six daughters, so it made sense. Uh, But she would be with us or have us with her, and she would say, oh, I could get you this for Christmas and put it in the cart. Well, then it went in her closet, and then she'd wrap it and forget who it was for. So there were a number of times where Jessie would open a present, and she'd say, oh, oh, give that to Aunt Cherie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Shelly was talking to... The same thing that you were mentioning, Andre, about experiences. So, you know, they have gifts under the tree, but uh, we're going to be going on our family vacation this year to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then uh, we're going to buy them all tickets to go see the aquarium in Chattanooga. So, you know, kind of an experience type thing as well. When you were wrapping gifts the other day, you did wrap Belle's boyfriend's present and in Bell's paper so we've got to find a gift somehow (laughs) (laughs) just shake shake it okay that's not going to work it's a flannel (laughs) well he is the same size as her so I didn't know (laughs) and I put it in the same bag because I knew I was wrapping presents and didn't think about it when you took the bags to wrap them right, so we're going to wrap it up here get that Ah! (laughs) All right, so this is Maverick and Mrs. Maverick <laughs> and Goose and Mrs. Goose. And we uh, wish everyone a blessed Advent season for the last few days and then a Merry Christmas and celebrate for those 12 days after Christmas until you get to the Epiphany Festival on January 6th. Oh, I would say that that is one tradition I just remembered. In our household, Christmas goes all the way to uh, January 22nd. January 22nd? That's my birthday. Oh, wow. That's a long time. <laughs> so one of the things that we also do is we try and have like an epiphany party somewhere around the 6th where we have maybe exchange of ornaments and things like that. And part of that is it gets so busy before or during Christmas vacation and so forth. And you don't want to have Christmas parties before Christmas because that's Advent season. So we'll do the epiphany party. So we'll wrap it up here. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life. 